0: summer children, You've stumbled upon perhaps the most impromptu episode of Peep This Noise ever recorded. I'm Logan Johnson, and I'm really into Hamilton, the play-slash-musical, not the man.
1: I'm Greg Marchant, and I'm really into the mountains above Ogden, Utah this week.
2: And I'm Nathaniel Johnson, and I'm really into the point-and-click video game Broken Age. What I'm not into, though is the knowledge I recently gained that most people can look at almost any object around them and without having ever put it in their mouth hole, have an idea what it would feel like inside of their mouth.
0: The reason for that is because of the way that we develop orally as children. (laughs) I just want to make that 100% clear. I know
2: that that's why. It still makes me uncomfortable that I can look at your glasses and go, hmm, never put those in my mouth, but I bet I know what that feels like. Sure, but you put
0: your own glasses in your mouth as a child.
2: Oh, sure, Not that I have glasses anymore for some weird reason. I don't know
0: what just happened. You like weirdly (laughs) got, you wanted to make sure the listeners were in no uncertain terms about your current state of vision, which I guess is okay, but it was a wild flex. Greg, I want to talk about yours because what you said was you were really into the mountains above Ogden, Utah this week, Mm -hmm. which made it sound like you were into the mountains that are here for this week and maybe next week only, (laughs) and then we'll get a new set that will migrate in. But <laughs> I'm assuming you did some hiking this week or it, some camping.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I just got back um, only a couple of hours ago from uh, from camping up in a spot called Malin's Basin above Ogden. And it was, I mean, it was a little bit of a mistake because when we hiked in, it was over 100 degrees. And uh, I'm not in very good shape. But uh but we made it down. It's it's so steep, like the the approach in there. It's so steep that going up takes about double or more the time is coming down. And so that was uh that was fun. But you no, know, it's beautiful up there. And um it's yeah, I was gonna say you haven't you given me can...
2: good reasons to go up there, you're like, it's a miserable hike, it was <laughs> hot weather, why and I'm like, You like this? <laughs>
1: It, it wasn't the hike that was the problem. It was me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I uh I haven't been hiking often enough, <laughs> and I made bad choices about when to start. Good.
0: Mm-hmm. Fair. Plus the word basin, it just kind of sounds kind of gross. <laughs> like I was up in a basin.
1: Okay. So let let me describe the let me describe this uh, the scene to you. Yes, please. So you go up. Uh, you go into a canyon. Um, it's called Taylor's Canyon. Um, you. Take uh, four or five switchbacks up. A couple of them are really long, and then the last few are fairly short. Um, you take some switchbacks going up, and you get up to this lookout at the very top. Uh, at the very top of this peak, um, it's like a sub peak of Mount Ogden, and you can see everything for like uh, you can ev- see everything for like 40 miles in any direction and then you go over the other side of the peak from the one you came up and you drop down into this little uh you drop down into this little valley with a creek running through it um and it's just wildflowers and it's just wildflowers and uh little trees everywhere there's lots of shade there's a breeze coming down off of the mountain peak and then if you uh and then if you um go uh If you uh, go and follow the creek for a little bit, you'll realize that it's heading towards some cliffs. There's another trail that you can go on. um, Like, if obviously not from the basin, because there are cliffs, but there's another trail you can go on to see that creek fall 200 feet off a cliff.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah. So it turns into a waterfall, basically. It turns into
1: a waterfall and flows through what's called Waterfall Canyon. Oh, that's aptly very good. named.
0: Yeah, a little and on it, the nose for my liking. Uh, welcome
2: to naming conventions for natural features <laughs> in the American West. Anyway, it's it's
1: really beautiful up there, and uh, it's really beautiful up there. And it was worth the hike. It just probably uh, it just mostly reminded me how bad of how bad of shape and shape I'm in right now.
2: But I really enjoyed it. So our takeaways from this are beautiful area. Greg's out of shape. And bad at planning when to start the hike? Yeah, because I
1: I started in like the hottest, uh, almost the hottest part of
2: the afternoon. Yeah, this sounds like something I would do, so good to know. Mm -hmm.
1: The last time, although the last time I did that, I got a heat injury. Uh, So I avoided that this time. (laughs) Good job. Well done.
0: For those of you who are wondering what these mountains and basins and peaks look like, I can't remember if we played Horizon Zero Dawn for this
2: podcast. We did, but I don't oh, no, know if no, the no. episode. Yeah, went up. yeah,
0: yeah. Backtrack. I know we played Horizon Zero Dawn for this podcast. I don't know if anybody's heard that episode. Um, because it's lost and in the archives. And maybe one day it'll resurface if things break bad with our recording schedule. Um worse than they already have, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Admittedly. Um But you can basically just play that game and get a pretty good taste for what the mountains here are like.
2: Yeah, I mean yeah, as far as, like, a video game translation of, yeah.
0: Yeah, they're pretty good. Yeah. I mean, Bridal Veil Falls is just fully in that game. Yeah, that's fair. Like, it's just in there. Which
2: is, like, a 15-minute drive from where we are. Right. Mm-hmm. Well,
0: I is
1: Horizon Zero Dawn based very much on actual geography?
2: It's, yeah, like, there's, like, a dozen different locations you can find that are. Okay. Like, so Bridal Veil Falls is in that game as a location you can find. There's, like, some sort of data point that tells you that it's Bridal Veil, I th- think... The Grand Canyon might be... No. Is it? There's some Uh, canyon in there that's really famous. Um, It basically covers, like, Wyoming and um, Idaho, Utah, Nevada area. And then the DLC basically covers Montana. Awesome. Yeah. The DLC is great, by the way. Yeah,
0: there's a sequel to that coming, too.
2: I'm so excited. And it looks like it takes place basically in California.
0: Right, which is weird because there's an (laughs) alligator in that trailer. And I'm not, like... A zoologist, but one thing that I can say definitively about California, there are no gators in that country. Now they're all robots, so you know we can do whatever we want. We're really playing Calvin Ball, vis a vis zoology. Good old Calvin Ball. <laughs> but um, I just think it's funny that they put a, like they're like, what would be in California? Crocodile or alligator? Very funny to me. Well, with that said, uh, I don't have a good transition. Somebody say something. <laughs> Keep talking. Oh, remember that time we <laughs> built railroads to California?
1: This is What are, are you doing?
2: This. This I, I thought transition. it
1: was railroads from California.
2: I think yeah, Logan t- is just trying to railroad us and put us on track. I totally ah, am. I totally am. Sense.
0: But when they built, so when they built a railroad from California someone, to Utah, someone
1: left and someone was lonely when they went.
0: True, and somebody, lots of workers were injured and died in the construction of that. Oh, what I'm saying is that there almost, was. Some Blood on the Tracks. And we've made it, folks. <laughs> See, I did it. That's a, that's how we do a transition in the radio industry. Take notes, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, yeah, so this week we're talking about Blood on the Tracks by Bob Dylan. Yeah. That really feels smooth, seamless. I don't have any regret about that at all. <laughs> I don't have any regret about the mouth sounds I made to bring us into this bit. Um, totally just really confident in it. Uh, but yeah, we're talking about Blood on the Tracks, the studio album by Bob Dylan. Um, which is actually kind of a, a bit of a unicorn in Bob Dylan's discography for a couple of reasons. Um, I'll give a little bit of background on it. So this is an album that Bob Dylan recorded in a winter in New York City in the middle of December. Freezing couple of days, they bunkered down in his studio and they decided they were going to record this album. They came out, they printed liner notes, they got the album cover ready. They were about to press the vinyl and Bob Dylan said, stop, we need to do it again. And so they went back and they actually re-recorded like 90% of this album.
2: Like almost every okay. single
0: track has a new version um, that was not recorded in that New York City session. So it's, um, it's a pretty diverse album. And a lot of people have speculated to like what is happening with the songwriting on this album. Bob Dylan is um, the best kind of modern figure we can ca- compare Bob Dylan to. There's not really a good correlation. I mean, the, the best modern figure is Bob Dylan, right? He, he is still alive and still making music. His 39th yeah, studio album. Yeah, I was going to say. Album. 39th? His 39th studio yeah. album. Plus, he has 19 albums of bootlegged material and, like, 20 EPs. It's nuts. I'm just
2: I'm trying to think about how much material that is.
0: Like, you could listen to all of Bob Dylan's music and not finish it in a day. <laughs> like it sounds you like you just, could
2: spend two days.
0: you get pretty close. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, There's he has a lot of material. Um, you could just sit down and just listen to Bob Dylan, and just fill your life with his his For tunes. A
2: solid two days with just unique content.
0: Totally. I mean, you get into those bootleg series, and you're going to start to get a little repetitive. But you've got he's got a lot. So he Bob Dylan is today's Bob Dylan still. Um, but another more maybe culturally appropriate figure we could compare it to is like people might see Bob Dylan kind of as a Taylor Swift, definitely in terms of fame. And also in, a ter- in terms of songwriting, Bob Dylan is really famous for saying um, on in an interview that when he uses words in songs like he, she, and they, he was really only ever talking about himself, right? So Blood on the Tracks kind of gets situated in this interesting place because even knowing that about Bob Dylan and even knowing his penchant for writing songs that reflect what he is like and, and what he, he is feeling and thinking, a lot of people actually speculate that he had been reading a lot of Chekhov the Russian playwright, when he wrote this album. So it lands in kind of this weird place that straddles the line between um, like, embellished fact about Dylan's life and literal fiction that he's just scraping out of Chekhov's work. Um, So that's a little bit of background on this album. Um, Instead of going through with like really specific questions and really getting into the nitty-gritty of particular lines or whatever like I always do when we talk about music, I wanted to talk just a little bit about some of the individual tracks in this album. But before I do that, I wanted to open up and ask you guys what tracks were like the standouts for you? Which were your favorites? Which were your least favorites? And where do we fall?
2: I mean, I liked The Jack of Arts, uh, Lily Rosemary and The Jack of Arts. Like that one. Um, that's, it for my like. that's it for my likes. That's it for my likes. I didn't like any of the other tracks. Oh boy.
0: Have you been tested for coronavirus? <laughs> I hear not having any taste is a symptom.
1: <laughs> Sorry, I'm pulling up the I'm pulling up the song list uh, the the track list for the album. Um...
0: While you do that, I really want to comment on the running bit that is me selecting media and Nathaniel talking about how much he dislikes it. <laughs>
2: like,
0: <laughs> okay, it's go. very interesting. It's it feels targeted at this point. <laughs> Every time Greg does something, he's like, "I love it. This is so." cool. <laughs> Enlightening, visionary, and every time I do something, you're like, "This is not, this is not pudding." Yeah, you <laughs> know to what quote, it is? How the Grinch Stole Christmas by Ron Howard. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, what what it is? Are we gonna do that show? Um, what it is is that uh, I know that we have to like make sure that Greg feels loved and welcomed on the show, because <laughs> if he leaves, this show is dead. And granted, if you leave, this show is dead, too. But I know that no matter what happens, you and I are going to keep making podcasts. Like, we will just make something else. So you just lie to Greg. Basically. What you're basically. Yes, Greg, you're a very smart, pretty boy. It reminds oh, me of a, you. of a
0: planning meeting we had when we were on an activities council. I wasn't even actually on this council. It was you and, and our friend, uh, the barn dog, and our friend, John, all sitting on this council. Please,
2: George Railroad Martin.
0: George Railroad Martin. Bless up. Um it was all of you sitting on his council. And I just remember every time the barn dog suggested a legitimately compelling idea, John would just go, yeah, I'm not really feeling that. And then I would suggest the most ironic, out-of-the-ballpark, like, craziest, dumbest idea. And he'd be like, love it. <laughs> every time, like, he was a yes man for all of my bad ideas. And <laughs> totally against anything that was reasonable. This was when we were teenagers, yeah. yes? And to this day, I have no idea why that was the case. <laughs> it, it cracks me up. And I, that's how I feel about... Like, I feel like Greg is is me, and you, <laughs> and I am the barn dog in this, this circumstance,
2: and it makes me laugh a lot. That's very good.
0: Oh uh, did you get that track don't, listing, Greg?
1: Yes, I did. Um, For our listeners, just don't listen to any critical takes that Nathaniel has given on something I have picked. <laughs> They're all lies. <laughs> They're all lies.
0: <laughs> it would be like opening a Yu-Gi-Oh! card pack as a kid and just having lies printed on every card. <laughs> A pack of lies. Uh, I see. Don't Didn't get the bit at first. Trust Thank it. <laughs> uh, so my blue my favorite... eyes,
2: white deception. Blue eyes, white. I'd like to speak to your manager.
0: That's blue eyes, white privilege. Go,
2: Go ahead, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
0: So, um,
1: I, I, the track that I liked the most was "Idiot Wind."
0: You have chosen wisely. Okay. To quote Indiana
2: Jones and the Last Crusade. Um <laughs> Not just quote it like I, intonate it.
0: I found
1: it wasn't exactly that I disliked the music here but I found I have a hard time listening to Bob Dylan's voice.
0: It's not pretty. Bless his heart. <laughs> he had other talents and yet no other talents. Incredible yes. songwriter.
2: <laughs> it, it's funny I was listening to this whole album with my wife there and she's like do you have to be listening to this and I was like Yes, I do.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so it was his songwriting that made him popular at the time, plus contrasted with, like, he was a contemporary of, like, Johnny Cash, right? Sure. Yeah. So, like, it's not too surprising that those kinds of voices worked back then. His voice is equally gravelly and more aged these days um, and even harder to listen to. But it was always the songwriting that was the draw for Bob Dylan, mm-hmm. right? That's mm-hmm. why people listened to him. He was never well, yeah. the.
1: The only problem is for uh, for simple twist of fate, I couldn't understand what he was saying.
0: That does happen on that song specifically. So <laughs> it's easier on vinyl.
1: So I, I missed uh, I missed out on a little bit of uh, of his uh, songwriting on that oh, song in particular. The rest of the rest of <laughs> them was able best. to. I was able to. <laughs> the rest of I was able to listen to, but my favorite my favorite was "Idiot Wind." Um I I just kind of uh I just kind of liked how sarcastic it was.
0: It's super sarcastic. And and actually Idiot Wind is one of the ones we're gonna have to talk about in depth. Uh so maybe that's a good place to start. It is uh in my opinion, lyrically speaking, the high point of the album. Um one of the interesting things is I mentioned that Bob Dylan has bootleg sessions available, and one of the <laughs> albums that you can get is aptly titled More Blood More Tracks that's very good it's just the versions of this song that they recorded in that December night in the studio before he said this is not gonna work and so like you can get the old versions of this and so it's interesting to hear songs like Idiot Wind he rewrote probably A good two verses of that four verse eight minute song wow and so about half of it is completely torn up and overhauled for yeah it's a a long song yeah Yeah. (laughs) so (laughs) so it's interesting to hear kind of his process and the way that he worked through that but i do want to talk about that song and a little bit about um its theming so a little bit of background specifically on idiot wind this is a a Piece of the song that is discussed at length in the liner notes for the album, which were considered at the time to be such good music journalism that they won a Grammy on their own. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah, wow. and and so the the liner notes discuss at length what the idiot wind is and what it means. Um, but I was curious, like, what were you guys' thoughts as you listened to the song? Um, what stood out to you? What does the idiot wind mean to you? From
1: what you heard? I so I I liked the. The, I was, as I listened to the first verse, I was like, okay, how should I interpret what he's saying here with idiot wind? And then I just, there's that really snappy line in the chorus where, uh, where it goes blowing every time, uh, idiot wind blowing every time you move your teeth, uh, and then gets really, uh, gets really, uh, harsh for a minute there and goes, you're an idiot, babe. It's a wonder you still know how to breathe.
0: Yeah. Um, intense, like definitely not something I, you would say to so, a person.
1: Yeah, so drawing from that, most of the time I got a like the idiot wind is hot air, like when you say someone's just blowing hot air, or blowing smoke. Um there were a couple of times there there were a couple of times where I felt like it was um where I felt like it was uh words that fool people. But it it kind of for the for at least the first half of the song, I definitely felt like it was the blowing hot air kind of uh kind of version for idiot wind but i'm scanning back through the lyrics to make sure i'm remembering that right
2: i i did forget that i really did enjoy the lyrics of this first verse where he's just like yeah i've been framed for murder i mean it's not my fault if i inherited a million dollars
0: yeah the um the exact lines are they say i shot a man named gray and took his wife to italy she inherited a million bucks and when they when she died it came to me i can't help it if i'm lucky um, which is a very funny way to say yeah. I've been framed for murder.
2: Um, but well, Except for he does start with saying, someone's got it in for me. They're planning stories in the press. Right. And this is, this is a driving force
0: behind kind of what Greg was saying about the idiot wind being like hot air or even things that fool people, right? Um, there's definitely this idea of the idiot wind as like an insidious form of like planted gossip, right? This idea that Somebody can tell stories about a person and completely turn their world upside down. Well,
2: um, I, I think that talking about the idiot wind, then it may be worth uh, mentioning this thing I learned about plastic straws recently. Um, so plastic straws in many states over the past couple of years and cities have started to be banned. Um, and this is based off of a number that our country uh, puts half a billion plastic straws in the ocean every year every day 600 million every day no but here's the thing where do we get this number from do you guys know no No idea okay penguin survey new york times didn't know where we get the number and congress members in various states who were making laws didn't know where this number where this number comes from either it was just a quote-unquote credible number because you know you start thinking about it and going well like how many do restaurants use like this makes sense it comes from a nine-year-old who did a bunch of telephone surveys of straw companies to see how many straws they produced um, which doesn't make it like not credible, but it also doesn't make it super well researched. Um, but I will say that story is incredible. <laughs> isn't it though? Isn't it? Um, and my point being, here's this nine year old boy who don't get me wrong, like starting an environmental movement and like trying to do a good thing in the world. Great. Great. But, you know, he's also a nine-year-old boy who's like, there's half a billion straws going every year or whatever he exactly said. And somehow people took hold of that without, you know, any actual fact-checking on that and started to pass legislation based on that number. That's wild, right? And that's what this song is in a way saying is going on is, hey, these rumors have just kind of started and people are just running with it without knowing the details of what actually happened.
0: Totally. And I I think one of my favorite parts of this is in that first verse again. Um, He says, let me see, I'm going to have to remember it because I can't get the lyrics pulled up. He says, even you yesterday, you had to ask me where it was at, meaning the money. I couldn't believe after all these years, you didn't know me any better than that, sweet lady. And so that's where this idea that she speaks the idiot wind comes from, right? This idea that even she is like, hey, where's the million bucks, right? Even his lover is like asking him. Where's the money at, though? (laughs) Um, And that's really, really funny because it sets the the backdrop for this entire piece that he is singing, right? Bob Dylan isn't singing just about gossip that hurt him because random strangers were talking about him. He's talking about gossip that hurt him because the person closest to him started asking him about the rumors and, and taking them very seriously, right? And again, who knows how much of this here is Dylan and how much is is Chekhov, right? But the point is that this is what what Dylan is is speaking to. Um, were there any other parts of the song that stuck out to you guys? I'm interested in what you
1: thought. Yeah. So um, there's a, uh, there's the verse um, further uh, further in uh, that says, "I woke up on the roadside, daydreaming about the things about the way some the way things sometimes are." Visions of your chestnut mare shoot through my head and are making me see stars. You hurt the ones that I love best and cover up the truth with lies. One day you'll be in the ditch. Flies buzzing around your eyes, blood on your saddle.
0: In a standard English teacher form, I'm going to ask you, so what does that mean to you? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so drawing on drawing on the whole thing that this is the, the person, uh, this song is about a person. The person closest to him starting to uh starting to breathe this idiot wind um, literally literally, I kind of take it to like he's he's putting her in the shoes of the man that was shot
2: um, okay,
1: but i I think this is the verse I think all the other verses feel really sarcastic, and this one feels angry to yeah. Me. This is this feels like the verse where he where he vents his anger and then he kind of goes from there and uh, in the uh, next few in the next few verses he starts expressing sorrow over um, he starts expressing sorrow. There's a there's a verse where he expresses regret that um, that uh, like regret that they're not together anymore and that he's uh, and that he's never how does he phrase it. Uh, I'll never, uh, you'll never know the hurt I suffered nor the pain I rise above and I'll never know the same about you, your holiness or your kind of love and it makes me feel so sorry. So he, it, it's kind of an interesting, it's kind of an interesting turning point in the song where it goes from sarcasm to anger to sorrow to uh, to regret and I just, I think it's, uh, I think it's kind of a cool, poetic structure i don't know if it's on purpose or just uh just the expression of how a thing like uh, if it's perfectly formatted that way or if this is just the way that the events that he's kind of referencing here panned out a little bit
0: yeah i like what you're saying here because i think that that progression you're describing is is like a very natural progression especially for people who go through like some kind of a trauma of being mishandled or or misrepresented or or misunderstood right And I like how it ends on this note of regret to kind of speak a little bit more to that. The end of this song um, says, what does it say? Idiot wind blowing through the dust up on our shelves. Um, Oh, no, it's idiot wind blowing through the buttons of our coats, blowing through the letters that we wrote. Idiot wind blowing through the dust up on our shelves. We're idiots, babe. It's a wonder we can even feed ourselves. So Mm -hmm. he pivots hard in the last verse, in the last chorus away from you're an idiot to honestly the idiot wind got us a both in the end. Right. It yeah. didn't just get the person who was affected by it immediately. We both became idiots because of the way that think that our lives had been triv- trivialized in the way that we had, had kind of become consumed by this rumor or this gossip or this hot air. Right. Uh-huh.
2: So growing up, um, My mother spent a lot of time trying to teach me uh, basically uh, moral principles through the lens of religion, and one of the things she said is oftentimes when you start learning things in religion, like, you know, what you should and should not do, it's very natural to be like, oh, everybody who is, you know, basically sinning is a bad person. They're all bad. And then you start realizing that it's a lot closer than this, like, foreign outside presence of the they- and you go, oh, we, as a group, as a community, are bad people. And then eventually you go, oh, it's me. I'm the bad person. And I feel like that's kind of what Bob Dylan does in this song is he goes, look at all these people breathing this idiot wind. You? How dare you? My closest person, my closest relationship. How dare you breathe it? Ah, I also breathe the idiot wind.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really, really clever way of looking at it. Because, like I said, this is this is Bob Dylan's songwriting style, right? Um It's the one interview, and it's very hard to source. I think it was in, like, 1971 with Rolling Stone that he was like, yeah, I write songs about myself. And it's one of his most quoted things he ever said, but he only said it once. It's not like a record. There are 500 million
2: plastic straws in the ocean every year. Right. I, I
0: had to hunt down this quote, this Bob Dylan quote, and it's, like, very hard to find. But this song and other songs by him, but this one in particular, really articulate that very clearly. He does start off talking about they, and then he talks about she, and then you, and then in the end, he's like, me, (laughs) which is just a very, a very Bob Dylan way of approaching your songwriting, and I really think that's interesting.
1: I don't know why, this is, this is a little bit, uh, this is a little bit off, as I was scanning through these lyrics, I was kind of confused, because I don't know why, as I was listening to this, I thought he made some kind of reference to Congress at some point, and called like, called like people and, uh, political figures or something like that. Idiots breathing idiot wind.
2: You know, having listened to other songs by Bob Dylan, that wouldn't have shocked me.
1: I, I don't know. I don't know what happened, but I, for some reason I thought that was in here <laughs> and it just, uh, it just isn't. But that is what the, that is what my other kind of thought on the song was like, uh, the, the anger in that one verse. Uh, I, I think it was probably, I think that idea problem that idea in me kind of came from the anger in that one verse mm-hmm. uh, because I kind of I do kind of feel angry right now at
2: the state of politics in general um, welcome to being an American citizen just you know whenever that's a lot of people just like throughout their lives they have that
1: thing. yeah but it, it it's not I mean it it's this weird blend of uh, just for me, I'm not saying that I'm the only one who feels this way, but sure. for me, uh, what that what that verse in particular brought out in me, for whatever reason, was this, uh, was this sense of, it's uh, was the sense of I don't like the partisan aspect, like the partisan aspects of our politics, and I don't like the people that are in our politic in our political system right now, and I don't think there's a good way to change it at the moment, and I think uh, I think just we're we're all kind of going to have to muck through it and maybe be angry muck for a while. Through it? <laughs> are you are you making a drain the swamp reference? I'm I don't a, think I'm that making, worked No, out. I'm making a
2: campaigning joke where what you do is you dig up everything terrible about a person's past. So uh, like, that's called uh, muck raking. <laughs> Yeah, and so you said you're, we're gonna have to muck through it, and I went muck <laughs> We're
0: gonna have to defame some folks. You know, it's interesting you bring up the political side of this. So this Bob Dylan album is not—it's
1: um, definitely not. Well, like when you said bom- Bob Dylan, I was—I thought we were gonna get uh, protest thought, music. Yeah, we're gonna get protest God on music, our side. Yeah, which I was, which I would have not to. I'm. I'm not trying to do the thing Nathaniel did at the beginning where I threw your choice under the bus, <laughs> but I would have been much more down for some uh, for some 1960s Bob Dylan than uh, than uh, Bob Dylan. Uh, that this felt like uh, this felt like a lot of Bob Dylan self insert stuff here. Totally, that's yeah. exactly
0: what this is because this is Bob Dylan post Vietnam. Yeah. Right. So this
1: isn't I'm not saying I didn't like this. I'm just say I'm just saying I was expecting I was expecting protest music sure. and I kind of got let down. That's me too. We
0: we would have had, I think, a much hotter discussion if we had done protest music. And we will probably do um the Bob Dylan album, his first real album of original music is called The Times They Are a Change in and we will probably cover that album at some point. I'm looking forward to it, I wanted to do it at a time where things were maybe a little less charged so we could maybe have a little more objectivity, though.
2: Can't we just do it, can't we just like schedule it for the same day as election day though? Ooh that would be good because that way no matter what happens with the election we come out because it's a Tuesday We'll come out with an album with <laughs> Bob Dylan that is politically charged and so whatever happens but it's important to note that
0: not even in that album which is widely considered to be one of Bob Dylan's more political um, most of those tracks are like like blood on the tracks hmm. like most of them are, our story. He has one in there about a farmer who murders his entire family. It's wild. Um, and so most of his his music is narrative like this. Although he does have the occasional song. One of the lines in the times they are changing actually speaks to this feeling you talked about feeling an idiot wind, which is yeah. He says, "Come senators, congressmen, please heed the call. Don't stand up the door or don't stand at the doorway. Don't block up the hall. For he that gets hurt will be he who has stalled." Uh, there's a battle outside a raging yeah i've heard those lyrics before yeah. so like that's like his his famous like protest music but even that album is is maybe less protest than we might expect from bob dylan but yeah i, I, I definitely see where you're coming from and and i want some critical distance before we discuss the okay, meatiest that's, that's bob fine. dylan of <laughs> protest music um
1: i just want to reiterate it's not that i disliked The music. No, I definitely hear you, though. That's what people expect. I was just waiting and waiting, and then eventually I realized that it wasn't coming.
0: (laughs) Yeah. This is, I think, Bob Dylan's songwriting at its most poignant, which is why I picked it. Um, Before we move on from Idiot Wind, because we've been talking about it for a chonky minute, I want to read from the liner notes, which took me a hot second to find, um, about what Pete Hamill, who wrote these um, liner notes in 1974, said. He said, Listen to Idiot Wind. It is a hard, cold-blooded poem about the survivor's anger, as personal as anything ever committed to a record. And yet it can also stand as the anthem for all who feel invaded, handled, bottled, packaged. All who spent themselves in combat with the plague. All who ever walked into the knives of humiliation or hatred. The Idiot Wind trivialized lives into gossip, celebrates fad and fashion, glory glorifies the dismal glitter of celebrity its products live on the covers of magazines in all of television in the poisoned air and dead gray lakes but most of all it blows through the human heart dylan knows that such a wind is the deadliest enemy of art and when the artists die we all die with them um which i think is you know we we blew a lot of hot air about idiot wind but i think that's about as poignant as a commentary as you can get on that song this idea that in the end there are words we can say and things we can do, that just contribute to a long, steady stream of wind, that kills the artists and kills our hearts, uh, which is a bit of a bummer. But I think it's important to note. Yeah, that is a little bit of a little bit of a bummer.
1: But yeah, I mean, it, it's a downer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the song is a little bit of a downer too, in a good way. Totally,
0: totally.
2: Spe- like on this subject of. You know, he talks about, you know, basically gossip ruining artists. It's weird that we do put celebrities up on such a pedestal, like where we want as a society to know lots of their intimate life details, right? Like a celebrity goes to court and it makes huge news for weeks on end. Or, you know, a celebrity goes through a divorce or has a child, right? These are things that for some reason, capture the public imagination that are good and bad in their lives and that's weird in and of itself and yeah definitely gets to some people in very negative ways i'm sure
1: i think it has contributed so personally i'm not super i'm not super moved by uh referencing the uh referencing the uh the notes that you were reading earlier Mm-hmm. Um I'm not super moved by the appeal to when the artist dies or uh it kills the artist or something like that. When the artist
0: dies we all die with them is the I, line, yeah.
1: For better or for worse I've never had very much pity for uh very much pity for uh celebrities. But I uh but I do kind of appreciate the movement or the the times we're living in now where um The attention that celebrities get has grown to encompass uh, politicians. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I I do think politicians are under more scrutiny, and uh, scrutiny, yeah, sorry, scrutiny. Um, But uh, but since my brain for some reason is going straight to straight to everything that I was expecting to everything that I was expecting <laughs> yeah. to get out of this album that kind of uh, that kind of is interesting to me that uh, while it sucks for celebrities I think something good kind of did grow out of it Right. Um, the part of the reason that I have trouble getting behind uh, getting behind Bob Dylan feeling kind of feeling sorry for himself in this scenario is not that if this scenario played out in this way, that doesn't, you know, that's not a rough, uh, that's not a rough moment for him personally, but part of it is that a lot of the songs on here, um, a lot of the songs on here kind of seem to feature a self insert of Bob Dylan as a character in the song, um, or him literally, and kind of celebrates the playboy protagonist, which I'm not really a fan of. Sure. i i don't like uh, I don't like Playboy protagonists. I don't find James Bond movies very, uh, very, uh, very engaging. Mm-hmm. I don't find uh, I don't find like Mission Impossible, Tom Cruise stuff very engaging because I just right. kind of associate it with uh, with the. Uh, it's the American
2: James Bond in a
1: lot of ways. Yeah, um, so I, yeah, I just, I had trouble, that I just kind of wanted to bring that up, because that's one thing I had trouble with, with throughout this album, the songs like, uh the songs like uh, Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts, or Tangled Up in Blue, um, or, oh gosh, what was the, what was the other one? Anyway, those two in particular, like, the, the, the first one, Um, the first one was him as the, as the playboy protagonist of the song, Tangled Up in Blue. And then, uh, later on we had Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts and, uh, and the, the whole song is just singing about, uh, is just singing about the Jack of Hearts who I, who I kind of interpreted as a Bob Dylan self insert in, in there. Like, and I just didn't like it maybe for the James Bond kind of uh the james Bond like especially in Jack of hearts the he's he's like a spy or a or mm. a criminal or something like that like and it and the the song's running like three different plot lines for him where he's somehow involved in a murder and also with uh also with um lily uh lily like removing the dye from her hair or whatever happened with that mm. and then like Stealing a bunch of money and his buddies are waiting for him, and there were all of these plot lines running running throughout this. And I
0: was just there's four, four, five, five main plot lines in that song. Yeah, it's like eight minutes long. It's crazy. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot happening.
1: I I just had a hard time with uh, I had a hard time with the uh, with how many of these songs seemed to feature some kind of Playboy protagonist because I I just don't uh, I just don't really relate sure I, I don't find it I don't find it compelling and I, I kind of wonder what uh, I kind of wonder if uh, how you interpret those songs because maybe I'm going at it from the wrong angle
0: I don't know if it's a wrong angle right what you're speaking to is is the, the archetypical figure of the 1970s rock artist right Bob Dylan was like world renowned for like he literally became world renowned for cruising around on his motorcycle from town to town Different people, different city every night, right? Since 19, the 1980s, Bob Dylan has been on a tour he has dubbed the never-ending tour. Coronavirus has been the longest Bob Dylan has not been on tour since the 1980s.
2: Oh, okay. Wow.
0: Yeah. Okay. So so he is the, the archetype of what you would consider the 1970s rocker. So I actually think that a lot of your criticism here holds up in, in very real ways. I think there's maybe a little bit more information that you can use to view it from another angle, but I wouldn't come at it and say, like, no, you've, like, missed the boat here. Okay. he's. It would be, like, like it's the same criticism you can level, especially at Taylor Swift's early work, right? And even some of her later work. This all seems to be about a high school girl, (laughs) right? Yeah. Taylor Swift is a high school girl, right? And she alludes to that in her, not her most recent album anymore, but uh, her album from last year, Lover. She refers to herself quite pointedly as Miss Americana,
2: right? Meaning Which makes like, me the heartbreak prince. Uh,
0: according to a certain lost tape where you alleged to have dated Taylor Swift. Yes, that's correct. Um, <laughs> if we ever find that, that will have to be a... That will ghoulish.
2: have to be a peep this
0: noise. Oh, like. oh, that's terrible. That's ghoulish. But yeah, you're right. <laughs> um, <laughs> nah,
1: no, it just it just needs to be published just like yeah uh, we're not
0: gonna comment on on it we're just gonna put it up we need to leak it is what we need to do Uh, nathaniel (laughs) recorded a christmas album in high school that's what we're
2: referencing (laughs) it's bad we'll have to talk about it sometime um
0: but yeah you know it's the same criticism that can be leveled here right in a lot of ways bob dylan is is writing like you said these kind of like um like archetypical gentleman playboy rogue songs
2: right gentle criminal yeah, exactly, right?
1: Um mm, no. No, not like that. Oh, okay. Uh smooth criminal? <laughs>
2: no, not like that either. Bob Dylan <laughs> wrote Smooth Criminal. <laughs> <No>. Wait, what?
1: <laughs> um If anybody got the if anyone got the uh My Hero Academia uh reference. That's not me. <laughs> um we're we're sorry. This uh uh gentle criminal does uh Gentle think, criminal
2: deserves more than that.
1: Gentle criminal deserves more than to just be a trope. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but yeah, so I, I see what you're saying. One of the interesting things that might help uh, shed a little light on some of these songs too, right? Specifically, "Tangled Up in Blue," which I guess is probably a good a good song to transition next to. Um, the original edit of "Tangled Up in Blue," so. That song opens, early one morning the sun was shining, I was laying in bed, wondering if she would changed it at all, if her hair was still red. Um, the original draft of that song, which you can listen to on more blood, more tracks, um, says early one morning the sun was shining, he was laying in bed, wondering if she had cha- if she'd changed it at all, if her hair was still red. So, and then he comes actually as another self-inserted character later. So Tangled oh, okay. Up in Blue is actually about two different men with the same who have different relationships at different times with the same woman. Okay. Right? So like at the very end, one of the things that you hear him sing is I lived with them on Montague Street in a basement down the stairs. Um, then he started into dealing with slaves and something inside of him died. She had to sell everything she owned and froze up inside. That he in that song is the uh former first subject of Tangled Up in Blue, which is just a mess. <laughs> but it's this is the song Bob Dylan is writing. So, again, this isn't to necessarily counteract your take. I think what you're saying holds a lot of water as a critique of the American road warrior as we p- perceive him in the 1970s rocker, right? But on the flip side, when you analyze a little bit deeper, there's another angle we can examine it that makes this significantly more complicated, than just a guy who is always chasing a girl as he bounces from job to job and strip club to strip club, which is a thing that happens. Which in that is song. the thing that happens in that song, yeah. Right.
1: I okay. So I guess maybe I'll move my criticism from I didn't like this aspect of the album, or I don't like this aspect of John. Uh, I almost said John Denver. I like John Denver. Um, <laughs> I like John Denver and the Muppets. Can you
0: imagine if John Denver had sung some of these songs? We, we would all look
2: at John Denver. Can you imagine if he would sung them with the Muppets?
1: <laughs> um, no, if I, or I'll or i move this from I don't like this aspect. It's not tangled
2: up in blue. That was a bad Kermit impression, but I think y'all saw where it's I was going. It's not easy being tangled up in green. <laughs> I'll, um,
0: Someday we'll find it. The idiot wind connection. <laughs> that one was a reach, but I think we got there. <laughs> anyway, I uh, I'll move
1: it from I don't like this aspect of him to just I don't like this uh, I don't like this uh, aspect of our of our American society of totally. at that time. I I don't find it compelling. I find myself like listening to the radio now and hearing uh, hearing songs like. Um, Uh, summer of 69, Mm -hmm. which is all about, uh, which has the, which has the lyrics. And if I had the choice, I'd always want to be there. Mm -hmm. I don't like, I'd always want to be back in that summer with the boys and the band and stuff like that. And I, it just like, it it just like, careful. I love this
2: song. Careful tread lightly everybody likes there's a and bad there's things. a
1: phenomenon that is happening all over the world in all over the world in wealthy countries where we look back on on some kind of on some kind of golden age in our history ah, okay. and say um and say that where we are now is always worse than it was then and and then say we don't have to go forward and make it better. We need to go back and just be there.
2: Mm, okay, fair enough. This and is a, it this turns is
1: a good it turns my stomach, and I change the song on the radio every time, and I can't listen to so I can't listen to Summer of '69 anymore. That and is a I tragedy
0: think, for America and Canada. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting the
1: I I I think I'm pinpointing why. Uh, I think I'm pinpointing why I specifically don't like the, uh, the American Playboy vibe that I get from some of these songs. And it's because it brings up memories of, it, it brings up associations, I should say, with those, uh, with those attitudes. Like, I can't get behind the idea of the American Playboy. But the American Playboy is part of that uh, is part of that time period and that legacy that a lot of people look to as the American Golden Age we've got to get back to.
2: I think I hear you. Yeah. Yeah. That actually well, makes a lot of sense that, to me.
1: I, I think I've worked my way around to what i I think I now know why this. I like
2: Summer of Sixty Nine compared to you because I don't interpret it that way. Oh, okay. Anyway, so sense. I'm
1: I'm gonna move it from I'm gonna move my criticism from I don't like this aspect of the album or I don't like this aspect of Bob Dylan to, as a figure. You don't like this aspect of America. <laughs> to I just don't like I don't like the aspect of our current society where we feel the need to want to go back to something that's dead and should stay dead because there's better stuff that we could
0: move toward. I mean, I think this is a fair criticism to maybe trivialize it or simplify it a little bit. You're essentially critiquing, in many ways, the modern conception of Western nostalgia, right? Which is this idea that...
1: And it's not even just necessarily Western. I've had this same conversation with, uh, with people from different parts of from different parts of the world who see sure. similar things going on in their countries sure
0: I was speaking more to this notion of the American Playboy right or of the, yeah. of the 1960s like literal 60s cultural figure James Bond right the kiss kiss bang bang that is a at this point a tired character let me Pitch you on my James Bond movie I came up with a while ago. It's actually super hot fire. Yes, it is. Um,
1: what's his name? The uh, what's his name, name? The current James Bond looks
0: a little tired, honestly. <laughs> Daniel Craig. Daniel Craig. Yeah, yeah. Daniel Craig yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, he's, looks his, a his tired. eyes are dead inside and have been for years. <laughs> I cannot imagine what that dude looks like with a coronavirus mask on, <laughs> like. <laughs> like he's gonna chill you. Which I've been, actually I've been, bring told, us by, out I've been too. told by
1: people that I have serial killer eyes and I I feel like All Daniel Craig has serial, <laughs> I uh, I feel like Daniel Craig has killer as serial killer eyes which
2: is you, why he made if such if a believable James Bond because James Bond is a government serial killer
0: yeah <laughs> which brings me to like an important point that I was going to uh, kind of add to what you were saying um, about the idea of the American playboy right the American playboy historically, and even to a degree currently, always has been, and and perhaps if, if we can ever leave that trope behind, then it will forever be immortalized in this way, as always balanced on the razor edge of the American psycho, right? This idea that the playboy must be dangerous a little bit, or a lot, in order to maintain his status in the cultural elite, Right, I think about this in connection with um, Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts. Right? Yeah, um, which the song with five plot lines? Yeah, if if I can shed a little light on this one too, that helps us understand this song a little bit better. Bob Dylan said, "I need to." He essentially sat down and was like, "I need to branch out of myself a little bit and begin to write." He's like, "I want to try narrative songwriting, right? I want to try like eight minutes of a cohesive narrative." Um, and he's like, and the Old West, it had always appealed to him because of his situation as 1970s American road warrior, right?
1: Ironically, I don't have, uh, on, ironically, I don't have a problem with the, uh, with like stories about the Old West. I do have a problem with like, I, I do have a problem with people with lifted trucks and rhinestones and rhinestones belts pretending oh, the to newest. be cowboys yeah, <laughs> yeah the i do i do have a problem with uh i do have a problem with uh city cowboys but um sure
0: so this was bob dylan's uh thing he decided he was going to try and evoke in this essentially long-form poem is this narrative that covers this idea of well what if somebody robbed the cabaret right and what would that look like and who would be there and he's speaking a little bit to the notion of uh, they weren't like gentleman thieves, but celebrity thieves, right? People like Butch Cassidy and, and um, Billy the
2: Kid, Billy sure,
0: Mister the Kid. <laughs>
1: yeah, no. Well, he he refers to he has the line, "There's no one who's a better actor than the Jack of Hearts," right? And he's walking back like in a monk's uh, in a monk's uniform or something. Yeah, he like, like, like but...
0: disguises himself to sneak backstage. Yeah, and like hurries into the the back of the the cabaret, right? Mm-hmm. And this is like. There's this idea, and and one of my favorite parts of this is early in this setup, you don't really know what's happening in this story necessarily, right? Like he opens on the lines, the festival was over and the boys were all planning for a fall. The cabaret was quiet except for the drilling in the wall, right? So if you understand what's happening, you know that they are robbing the cabaret, right? Yeah. They were ready for a fall. But my first listen, at least, this is speaking to my experience, I did not immediately think, "Oh, somebody's robbing this cabaret," right?
1: I, I didn't think that immediately. Uh, that immediately either. It just contributed to, contributed to my perception that the uh, that the Jack of Hearts in the song is supposed to be somewhat dangerous. He's there right. at a time when nobody really should be there.
0: Yeah, it, as Bob Dylan says in the song, "Anyone with any sense had already left town." <laughs> yeah, um, which is like, and then it's right after that that he introduces the Jack of Hearts, right? So he's already introduced as kind of like I said, this this character, this figure who balances on the line between American Playboy and American psycho, right? Like just just dangerous enough to be a little crazy for being there, right? Yeah. And there's this idea that um that that's this figure, right? Um
1: And the the other thing about that trope is that they're always destined to fall. The the American Playboy is always destined to fall into the American psycho and that's how they, that's how their career ends. You're not supposed to, uh, you're supposed to live hard, die young. Totally. That's the, that's the trope.
0: Yeah, that is, that is definitely trope. And and this song kind of, I think it plays with it a little bit. It doesn't necessarily engage like the Jack of hearts does not die in this song. Right. No, but he doesn't away because he vanishes completely from the narrative. Yeah. By the end. I mean, of course Bob Dylan opted not to write a chorus for this song. So every line, every verse ends with the line, Jack of Hearts, right? Yeah. Um, But he, uh, aside from that, those mentions, he vanishes completely from this town, from this narrative, from these people's lives, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that that's kind of wrapped up in this idea of the tragic fall of, of this kind of a cultural figure. Nathaniel, you've been peculiarly silent. What are your thoughts so far on what we've discussed? He's
1: he's avoiding criticizing my commentary
2: because he wants me to stay on the podcast. Oh, yeah, I forgot this that. Is true. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> um, no, I, uh, gosh, I always feel so bad because uh, when I listen to this, just this album in general, part of the thing that kept running through my head is ah, you know what I was, wish I was listening to right now? I wish I was listening to 2112 by Rush. Like, just <laughs> repeatedly that kept happening. That's very I funny. I mean,
1: listening too. to Rush is always good, sorry. Yeah, but specifically
2: yeah. 2112 is what
1: kept going right, through the, my brain.
2: The true, like arguably the pinnacle of narrative
0: songwriting, right? Right. Like, that
2: song is exceptional. Um, and there were times that uh, Bob Dylan would sing, and I'd go, oh, you know who has a better singing voice? <laughs> <Right>. Yeti <Jenny> Lee <laughs> from Rush? Yeah. I mean, that's a take. I don't know if I agree with it.
0: I've never,
1: I've never heard someone say salesman with more uh, with more enthusiasm, though.
0: Fair. <laughs> that's honestly fair. Um. I, I think that they are uh in different classes of voice yeah i don't think those classes can be measured very easily by quality Getty lee's vocals are distinct is what i would say as are bob dylan's for sure like if you hear a bob dylan song after this you're gonna be like i know who this is like if i were to play knocking on heaven's door right now you'd be like oh this is this is
2: robert dylan (laughs) By the way, I love how many like tabletop role playing games we've played where you have just named your character in some way Bob Dylan (laughs) because I always play the bard, so I'll be I'll
0: be once I was Rick Astley. Don't forget that one. (laughs) I was never going to give that campaign up. My point is, my party down. You do
2: this, yeah, I I, do. But no, uh, what I was going to say is, as I was listening to this music, I was like, wow, I really just don't like the way he sings. Um, but then we got to uh, Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts, and I was like, oh, but this song is kind of like a banger. I really like this one.
0: Yeah, it's an enjoyable listen for sure.
2: As compared to the others, where I was like, eh, wish I was listening to something else or someone else sing these same lyrics. Because lyrics are good, and the music itself sure. is totally just like fine at worst and but good at best.
0: People like me who are amateur musicians actually really appreciate this about Bob Dylan because it like, sets such a low barrier to entry. If you want to cover a Bob Dylan song, like again, like you listen to enough Bob Dylan, like I have, and you really come to love his voice. Sure. Right? But I will agree and concede that that is not the experience for most people. right? And so it sets like, an incredibly low bar to entry where like I can play Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts, and to most people it's going to sound better,
2: which is just awesome. <laughs> um, then a dude who has been on tour... Nonstop since since the the 80s until coronavirus. Yeah, I got to see him before he he passes.
0: But yeah, I I like what you say about this being kind of an enjoyable song. And I definitely think that this plays a little bit into Dylan's motives in writing it, right? Um, He definitely wants this to be an action movie of a song, right? Speaking to what Greg said about it being about the American Playboy, this is supposed to be an action movie romp. This is a movie about the western, or this is a song about the western Ethan Hunt, right? Or the even further western James Bond, right? Yeah, you know? yeah. This is a song about the Jack of Hearts, right? And we don't know who this guy is, but he's he's cool enough to have a name and a calling card. Um, one of my favorite parts of this song is when, um, as far as like narrative structure goes, I should say, is in the when we're introduced to Lily, who is. Um, a complicated character to say the least she's the the love interest of the jack of hearts but also the love interest of big jim who owns the town's only diamond mine so a very fraught character to be sure um but in the background or in the back behind the cabaret when she's introduced they're playing a card game and she calls another pair and draws up the jack of hearts which is like this foreshadowing that like there's some connection between these two Right? But I just think it's funny that he's able to call him the jack of hearts and therefore use this imagery of like the physical card to, to presage
2: this guy's introduction into the scene in a further way. Not to make it sound like Bob Dylan stole his idea from someone else, uh, but it reminds me of uh, DC Comics' villain, The Joker. Totally. Um, which... It, <laughs> The Joker's been around for almost as long as Batman has, which Batman's been around for over seventy years. So it wouldn't surprise me if, like, he unconsciously or even purposefully drew on that. But like, there's kind of that thing where, like, yeah,
0: the history of calling cards goes way back, right. back way further. Like, okay, people use playing cards,
2: but this that, is my right? point, right? Like, it's cool. The idea of somebody using a playing card as a calling card is so cool that it like made its way into the superhero genre. Like, right, like. A a, a genre, which I cannot stress enough, has aliens and gods and magic and technology that is essentially magic. Somebody at some point said, you know what we need to keep in all of, like, our things? This one dude still needs to use playing cards as his calling card. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Because it is kind of cool. Yeah. Even in this weird universe. And so, like, the fact that Bob Dylan does this in a much more grounded story, um makes that, in a way, like, elevates that status of cool within this story.
0: Well, and it's funny, too, because it's not like this is, like, the jack of hearts is, like, here's my card. But it's just we are to understand that he is the jack of hearts, and whenever the card is, like, in the song when the card is drawn, we know that that means him. We've had two verses to establish that, right? right. And I think the... uh To kind of circle back, I really like Greg's thoughts about the American Playboy, right? (laughs) I think his naming and his nomenclature as the Jack of Hearts is particularly interesting in surrounding that, right? We only see him with, well, in the version of this song you guys listen to, (laughs) (laughs) we only see him with one woman. um, And so the title Jack of Hearts is more of an implication, right? Yeah. Than it is like any kind of actual statement of, of what he is or what he does, right? Um, I want to talk a little bit about kind of some of this song's themes. We've talked a lot about its imagery and its its ideas. I want to talk a little bit about, I said themes, I mean narrative structure. We've talked at length about the themes. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about where this goes. Did, were you guys able to follow this story at all? No.
1: I uh, I got a little bit lost as to what happened exactly with Big Jim, <laughs> but right. I just went through and read it to... Uh, to figure it out I got a little bit I got a little bit lost with that because of the imagery Mm -hmm. like uh, there's aside from just the imagery of the jack of hearts there's the idea that um, there's the idea that Lily draws the jack of hearts right Um, whereas she she has two queens and she was hoping for the queen of hearts and if I can draw from an eagle's song the queen of hearts is always your best bet fair (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um and then uh rosemary is leaning on the jack of hearts she's counting on him to make her uh to make her goals happen um and i got a little bit lost in that imagery at the time so i had to read back uh, i had to read back through it to figure out what was happening exactly and who were all of the people in the scene because it it seems like at one point they're all like actually like right there they're all backstage crossing paths with each other and then stuff happens and that's that's where i got tangled up is where they were basically all backstage
0: well one of my favorite parts of this song is when they're all backstage and part of the reason that i think especially first-time listeners get really confused here is that bob dylan pivots from like the backstage manager was really worried he went to get the hanging judge the hanging judge was drunk right we're all like trying to figure out what's going on here everything And then he says, no one knew the circumstance, but they say that it happened pretty quick. The door to the dressing room burst open and a colt revolver clicked. And Big Jim was standing there, you couldn't say surprised, Rosemary right beside him, steady in her eyes. She was with Big Jim, but she was leaning to the jack of hearts. And then immediately after that, immediately after saying, no one knows what happened, but here's the setup, he cuts to the funeral of, well, funeral. The hanging. And the hanging, right? Big Jim is dead and they're hanging
1: Rosemary. I think I think by saying the hanging judge, he means the sheriff.
0: Yeah, the like the, the, the law, the law. Yeah, the authority responsible for hanging folks <laughs> and judging them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: So I just realized something, um, and I think this might be kind of useful for our listeners to recognize. Um, I looked up how many verses there are in this song. And you found the missing one, didn't you? Well, <laughs> um, he deleted a verse from this song, and I'll yeah, when it. I when I Googled this, the top
1: result had incomplete in parentheses at the end of it.
0: Yeah, if I can brief aside before you say your thing, since we're on the missing verse, um, it was printed in the lyric sheet that came with the album. Oh, but it was very not good. included in the album, which <laughs> is just because he they had printed all of the materials before they pressed the records and so when he cut a verse he cut a verse it's just gone and so people got this album and were expecting this verse and they had it in there but it's not in the actual record which is pretty cool that is pretty cool it is in more blood more tracks y'all
2: can check it out <laughs> um i was going to say there are 15 verses according yeah. to this um which might mean 14 i guess but either I way i don't know for, which 14 is, 15, 15 16, 16 that range from 14 to 16 Um, for context in like a regular pop song, you've got (laughs) two to three verses and a bridge and a bridge and maybe like some sort of chorus that comes two or three times. Right. Like, and a pop song is three to four minutes. Typically like no wonder this song is eight minutes. No wonder. Like it's, it's a wonder that it's not longer. (laughs) Yeah. I,
0: (laughs) to kind of laugh and poke fun. I, I mentioned I can play this song typically takes me way less than eight minutes Bob Dylan is a little slow <laughs> getting this narrative out there um, I can probably do it in five or six the verses are pretty short that's fair but um, but yeah it is interesting to point out that the way that this narrative is framed is definitely he took his time writing this structure and getting it um, getting it organized I think it's interesting the way that he sets up all of these characters sets up the tensions between them and then he kind of throws it all away in this, you, you decide what happened all we know is that Big Jim is dead and Rosemary's on the gallows um, or the other part of this song that's really important is when you find out that it's a heist right and he says um, two doors down the boys finally made it through the wall and cleaned out the bank safe it's said they got off with quite a haul in the darkness by the riverbed they waited all around for one more member who had business back in town for they couldn't go no further without the jack of hearts right this idea that like oh he was I mean of course he was in on it <laughs> But he immediately turns it from, like, this relationship drama to, but also it was a heist the whole time, and if you had paid attention in the first verse, you would know that. Or the seventh verse or whatever that he mentions, the drilling in the wall again.
1: By the way, that is another trope of the American playboy in specifically, like, an action movie Mm -hmm. context, is that he can't just focus on what he's supposed to be doing. Right. He has to have, like, he has to have multiple things going on at
0: once. Well, he has to be juggling and manage the final trick. Right? Yeah. He has to manage the prestige.
2: To mm. quote one of my favorite, though definitely problematic, uh, heist films, Ocean's Eleven, the recent one that does not have Frank Sinatra, but instead has uh, George Clooney.
0: Um, Do we know for sure it doesn't have Sinatra, though? Think about it. Fair <laughs> enough.
2: Um, <laughs> the The pitch of this movie is, of course, that they're going to rob a series of casinos um, that all share a bank vault and are owned by one person. But his character, Danny Ocean is also trying to win back his ex-wife. And his best friend, Rusty, played by Brad Pitt, uh, confronts him about this when he realizes that's what's going on. And he says, in reference to the ex-wife, Tess doesn't split 11 ways, referencing however many members of the crew there are. Um, And he's mad at his friend for trying to juggle both tricks, essentially, at the same time. Um, But it's the trope. Like you said, this is what happens. Um, And it's the worst because Tess is just like an object in this film and not a person with agency and it sucks uh, to watch that play out as an adult when you go, oh, she could be replaced by like a diamond and the story doesn't change. Um, right. But this is normal in a lot of these films where you've got a playboy character, like you said. Yeah, right.
0: This is where I maybe credit um, this song in particular as maybe definitely not shattering the mold that it falls into, right? Right. But definitely doing some interesting and unique things, right? Uh, if you were to characterize a a character in this as, like, pointedly not an actor, it's probably Big Jim, right? He shows up. We know he's the bad guy, right? Like, vaguely. He's cheating on his wife, and he owns the diamond mine. But, like, that's a pretty loose setup because the jack of hearts is kind of in a really similar situation. Mm-hmm. He's, like, exploiting people and with multiple women as well, right? Right. Um so this character doesn't really act, but Rosemary on the kind other kind of implied hand, the same multiple women. Oh yeah, a little bit. Okay, implied. solid point. <laughs> kind, of, kind of,
1: kind of implied that uh, the the Jack of Hearts is involved with both Rosemary and Lily. It's and certainly possible. Big Jim is bol- involved with both
0: Rosemary and Lily. Yeah, this is like, it's definitely Big Jim is with both, and the Jack of Hearts is definitely with Lily. And Rosemary leans to the Jack of Hearts like she knows that the future of their little town is somehow dependent or she can somehow use the Jack of Hearts mm-hmm. as an exit point both for herself and for the troubles Big Jim has caused on the town, right? Yeah. And I think that's interesting because it really places, it really situates Rosemary as an independent actor in a unique way.
1: That That is true, yeah. And looking, I, I liked her. I liked uh, especially the
0: got to meet my mac before we started this <laughs> <laughs>
1: i i liked especially the um not that not not that i like ever seeing a seeing a character that i like die but i i liked the idea that she knew what the outcome was going to be and they they showed the they showed the consequence of what happened like of totally of of her committing murder there was going to be a consequence but she just doesn't care well, what I she love, she did what she came to do.
0: The line is "Rosemary on the gallows, she didn't even blink." Followed by the snarkier, "The hanging judge was sober; he hadn't had a drink. Like he was not missing this one. <laughs> he, he had a job to do because last night he definitely screwed it up." Um, yeah, but I definitely like this idea that yeah, she she calculated the risks and she took them. In fact, she the the Jack of Hearts we can situate as. unfortunate trope. Lily, in a way, is also an unfortunate trope, though she is given at least an implied backstory that situates her as more of a character with a history and agency. Big Jim is a trope, but Rosemary is an actor, right? right? So I think that you can make a strong case for, like, who is the main character of this, right? Is it the Jack of Hearts, who vanishes by the end, but is responsible? He's the catalyst? Is it Lily who is the only character who makes it through the whole narrative or is it Rosemary who is the independent actor who uses the catalyst to her advantage yeah. right? um, to kind of live the American dream and rise above her circumstances in the craziest way.
2: Well, right? I think that the idea of uh, putting a main character in a structure like this is kind of uh, not the best way to look at it in a lot of ways. Right. Cause I mean, the Jack of Hearts is the title character and the most important character. They're all we- the title character, though. Right, right, except for Big Jim um, <laughs> yeah, and the Hanging Judge. That dude sucks. sucks.
0: <laughs> um, and the backstage manager. Who, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who has
2: more of a role than, the- as much of a role as the judge. The, the point, though, being um, trying to find a main character in a narrative like this isn't really, you know, necessarily the best way to do it, because if we were to take uh, one of my favorite series, The Lord of the Rings... Well, the title character is Sauron, the Lord of the Rings, and then maybe Frodo's the main character because, you know, he's the character that's in it from start to finish and we get a lot of his perspective. But then we also get, you know, significant perspective from all the hobbits and from Aragorn and, you know, maybe it's just not about who's the main character and more what roles do each of these characters fill in the story.
0: Yeah, I think when I say main character I mean less like who is this narrative about and more upon whom does this narrative hinge in an important way, right? Like what is the what is the character that this this narrative cannot do with, without. So I guess in kind of closing cuz we're running long on time here. Um I love the way that this narrative is structured. I love the way that it highlights these different characters, makes them actors in their space. Um, before we wrap up, I do want to kind of end on very like me to say, can I read one thing as a parting shot? Um, but I, one of the things that I really want to read here is the extra verse that's not included for people who are not going to go listen to More Blood, More Tracks, and hear the extra verse. Fair enough. Um, I, I think this is interesting because it really lends a credence to what Greg has said about this archetype that this character falls into. Um, The verse goes, Lily's arms were locked around the man that she so dearly loved to touch. She forgot all about the man she couldn't stand who hounded her so much. I've missed you so, she said to him, and he felt she was sincere. But just beyond the door, he felt jealousy and fear. Just another night in the life of the jack of hearts. Which really lends to this setup Greg has given, but also I think, It 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 really changes the like the energy of the song from that point on, right? Because he's essentially saying like he knew they were coming for him, and that anyway it it balances him more on that dangerous edge that I think is really interesting and really
1: cool. I I kind of I kind of like knowing that detail. I kind of like the way the the song turned out. uh, The song turned out without it because it did put more of the focus on Rosemary. Totally. Totally, but I agree with you. I I don't I I don't think I really have a problem with a Playboy character not being the main character, but yeah. existing in the na- existing in the narrative alongside a different main character.
0: Yeah, and I guess this is kind of where I land on this Bob Dylan album in general. While I agree with your criticism, I really feel like this album, and and part of this is my background with it. Right, I've listened to the album. I have read the background i have read the liner notes i have listened to the
2: original (laughs) versions of these songs you have learned to play some of these songs yeah
0: i can play some of these songs and sing them um i definitely feel like this is an album that in the end lands while it falls into problematic tropes at times lands as being incredibly well thought incredibly well thought out incredibly well structured from a narrative perspective and musically interesting enough to carry itself
1: yeah, despite my criticisms, I didn't, I did enjoy it overall.
0: What
2: about you, Nathaniel? I know you hated it. You I liked to... this song. <laughs> okay, I'll take it. <laughs> this was the one song that I was like, you know what, banger. Can I say the one song that I
1: just really wasn't a fan of? Yeah, hit me. I'm interested. Uh, it's you're gonna make me lonesome when you go. Shut up. Because I is that would. Not... Okay. The no, entire I time, I was just thinking that I would rather be listening to "Ain't No Sunshine" when she's gone. Ah,
0: that's fair. <laughs> you're going to make me lonesome when you go is like my favorite song on this album bar none. Like, and so I was like, Oh, we were so close to like just a good positive. take from Greg on this. It's fine. It's that's fine. just,
1: that's the one song that I was just like the entire, the entire time I just couldn't get into. And it was because it's
0: the same, it's the same song, it's, but they did it better. I'm sorry. It's profoundly not the same song. He says a line about dragon clouds in that song. It's fine. We, <laughs> Imagery aside, we've all seen clouds that look like dragons. We can't pretend we haven't. Um, it's just a different song. It's a different song. Fundamentally, Ain't No Sunshine is just a bummer. You're Gonna Make Me lend someone When You Go is a positive song. But we don't have the time to debate that right now. Um, that song is a happy song. It's like, what if 21 Pilots like committed to the bit of being happy and depressed? That was Bob Dylan back in the day. Um, anyway, uh, we're going to wrap this up. I appreciate both of your takes on this. Welcome. I wish that you were more interested in keeping me on the show, Nathaniel. Um, (laughs) I don't
2: have to work to keep you on the show. (laughs) That's facts.
0: It's effortless. Um, Speaking of things that are effortless, uh, going to your podcast platform of choice and rating and reviewing this podcast is relatively effortless, and it would do a lot to help us uh, expand our audience. We don't do any kind of advertising for this show. Um, You can find us on the web at www.initiativerole.com. Whoa, that's our old website, uh, www.peepthisnoise.com. Initiative roll is an old podcast, a deep poll. Maybe um, a whisper of things that could potentially be ahead. (laughs) We'll see. Um, You can also find us on Twitter at peepthisnoise. Smashing that follow button is relatively effortless. Sending us an email at mail at peepthisnoise.com. All pretty easy things to do. You can also find us at info at peepthisnoise.com. Uh, Greg, where can people find you on the internet? Can people find you on the internet?
1: Uh, yeah, my my uh, Twitter handle is I just I think it's just my name, just Greg Mart at Greg underscore Marchant or something like that. Awesome.
0: Nathaniel. People cannot find you on the internet, but if they try, do you know the string of numbers that's after the first half of your name <laughs> on Twitter? I'm um, begging you change that Twitter <laughs> handle.
2: I will definitely be changing that <laughs> I tried
0: to tag you in something, and I was like, yeah, that's just not going to... My copy editor mind was
2: like, that's not going to happen. He's just not getting tagged in this. <laughs> yeah, um, so <laughs> my, my Twitter handle currently, which I will be changing, I promise, is N-A-T-H-A-N-I... <laughs>
0: Awesome. <laughs> Strong start. Love that.
2: So it's like part of my name.
0: Yeah, and then it's what, your Alpine District
2: school <laughs> student ID? Something like that. Uh 97275876. Uh for the kids at home. That's again 97275876. And one more time, that toll-free number is 97275876. <laughs> but wait, there's more. Uh, once again, if you want to help us out, you can reach us at N-A-T-H-A-N-I. Nine seven two seven five eight seven six. Change it, please.
0: I love how you are the only person in history who got to the screen where they're like, "This username is taken." Would you like one of these? And I was like, "Yeah, why wouldn't I want one of these?" <laughs>
2: uh, I, I actually don't know how that happened because that's very unlike me. Yeah, you smashed that button, and it's totally
0: fine. You can find me on Twitter at Logan Has a Take, which you, is a lot easier to find. <laughs> um, I'd like to give a special thank you to Katie Davidson and the band Key Losers. They're the ones responsible for our theme song, Don't Know Why, that bumpers the beginning and end of this show. Um, If you haven't started following Key Losers, I don't know what to tell you. Their discography is pretty easy to keep track of. Uh, They do new stuff every once in a while, but generally they're a pretty quiet band. So uh, enjoy it while you have it and while it's new to you. (laughs) It's really good. Um, Next time, we are going to be talking about another musical album. Um, in the interest of talking about a longer work for the long haul. So we're going to start reading the book. Greg, remind me what it's called. Is it The Rainbow and the Serpent? Uh, the Serpent and the Rainbow
1: by so Wade was. Davis. Yeah,
0: Serpent and the Rainbow by Wade Davis, uh, which we talked about in our last episode, or Wade, maybe the one before.
1: Uh, I think it was our last episode. Wade Davis is a National Geographic explorer in residence, and he's a very he's an anthropologist and a very good storyteller.
0: Yeah, so that book is what we'll be working on over the next probably three weeks. In the immediacy, we're going to be talking about something I alluded to earlier, uh, Taylor Swift's new album, Folklore. I am subjecting you all and forcing you to listen to it for this podcast.
2: If you don't know who Taylor Swift is, we can't help you.
0: Actually, we can, and it starts by listening to Taylor Swift's new album, Folklore. Uh, But if you honestly truly don't know who Taylor Swift is, I want you to know that you're the reason for the teardrops on my guitar. Um, (laughs) Yeah, man. (laughs) There's probably another Taylor Swift song I could also use there. There's probably a dozen of them, but that's the one I'm going with. Um, Yeah, so thanks again for for listening to Peep This Noise again. We're going to be talking about that uh, album, Folklore, not the song "Teardrops On My Guitar, for our next episode. Though if you want to listen to Taylor Swift's entire discography we will end up dragging some history in there. So you will not be harmed for being relatively familiar with her work. Um, but yeah, thanks again for for sticking around. We really appreciate your listenership. Uh, this has been another episode of Peep This Noise. And remember, everybody likes bad
2: things. So open up your mind
1: the wind inside